You're listening to AMWA's Diversity Dialogues, an interdisciplinary podcast that is designed to promote diversity of thought through unfiltered and honest conversations about all topics related to diversity and inclusion, highlighting the disparities and inequities in medicine and population health. And most importantly, what can we do about it? Welcome back to another installment of AMWA's Diversity Dialogues, and I am your host, Cheyenne Brown. We have Dr. Agarwal, our Chief Diversity Officer, back with us for another episode. And as always, she's here to help facilitate a great conversation about a very important topic. Dr. Agarwal, thank you so much for being back with us. Thanks, Cheyenne. And... um I am so pleased today to introduce a friend and colleague uh, that I have been working with for over 10 years here in Chicago um, on many, many different types of projects, but all of them have one big denominator. These projects are occurring in our communities that we serve. These projects have a very strong social um, um, aspect to them regarding uh, disparities equity issues, and also there is an element of innovation in all of the projects um, that we'll be talking about today, largely due to the um, vision of our panelists. So Ms. Nellie Vasquez-Roland is the president and co-founder of A Safe Haven Foundation, and she really is a pioneer architect for the social, economic, and housing models that are being used to address homelessness. In doing her work, she has become a serial social entrepreneur, and she's also been an affordable housing developer, uh, leading her to write multiple stories, blog posts, but also now an author of Healing Real Stories Told by People Who Overcame Homelessness and Opioid Addiction. So she is going to be panelist for today's podcast. I'm hoping we're going to have more with her because as you can tell by her brief bio, we have a lot to talk about. So I want to welcome you, Nellie, to the podcast today. I'm so excited that you're here. Well, thank you, Cheyenne, and thank you, Dr. Agawal, for um, inviting me to be here today. And as you mentioned, uh, we've been working together behind the scenes for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. and uh, brought together specifically on the issues of um, homelessness and addiction. Um, many of the issues that we have been facing are women military veterans, but also have huge implications on what's happening with women in general, especially uh, in the aftermath of COVID-19. We learned that our most vulnerable populations, especially women with children, you know, have been uh, disproportionately uh, hit you know, by the issues of unemployment, job loss, domestic violence, substance abuse, mental health, you know, and the list goes on, which is uh, causing a huge surge in homelessness. And um, I believe, you know, that the systems we have in place, you know, have an opportunity right now to be fixed, you know, uh, as we were saying, you know, before we got on line here, that, um, 
the pandemic really exposed those gaps. And these are things that we've been trying to bring attention to, but never has it become more obvious than it was during the pandemic. And, uh, and never has the urgency been greater uh, than now to prevent you know, more catastrophic consequences of the pandemic, which continue in the shadow of the fact the pandemic is hopefully becoming something that we're going to see in the rearview mirror as opposed to right in front of us. You know, but let's not forget that what we do right now at this moment will lay the framework, you know, for what the future looks like in dealing with something that had already been happening before the pandemic, and that was the surge in the opioid and the homeless epidemics, but has actually accelerated now during and even after the uh, pandemic has, you know, has um, occurred. So I'm looking forward to this conversation and sharing more about a safe haven, sure. and ways that you know people can get involved, how we can all get involved in creating again that infrastructure, which I call the human infrastructure that we need, that needs to be much more compassionate and much more laser focused, you know, on coordinating services for each individual to prevent homelessness, to address homelessness, and to end homelessness once and for all. And I believe we have the ability to do it. Well, you know, one thing, you know, that you're bringing up and to our listeners, um, and especially to a lot of our physicians, uh, we may not, if you are predominantly working in the clinic or in the hospital setting, you may not understand the scope of homelessness. Um, Again, people often come to you um, to see you Yet um, it's only when we do an intake or it's only when we try to uh, have a medication prescribed and we need an address that you may see addresses that are not given or wrong addresses. And really it's a reflection of um, I'm homeless uh, and not wanting to say that I'm homeless. Um, So can you just tell us in your experience Right now, what is the current status of the homeless population? And let's focus on Chicago. Um, I'm based out of Chicago. You're here in Chicago. So let's just talk a little bit about Chicago. What are the numbers, the best estimates that you know of the homeless population in Chicago right now? Well, as you can imagine, um, it's very, very difficult to quantify Mm -hmm. uh, the number of homeless uh, because they are typically hard to find, you know, And while there's lots of different ways that we formally count the homeless, for example, HUD uh, does do a what they call point in time count, which for one day, one evening, all through the night, starting like at eight o'clock at night to like two or three in the morning, um, they have volunteers, including an army of volunteers from East Safe Haven, they go out into the streets and actually try to count the number of people that we find um, living in obvious, open places uh, because during that count, we're not allowed to go into abandoned buildings, right? We're not allowed to go into places that may be dangerous for a volunteer to go and count an individual, but where they're most likely to be found, especially when the point in time count is scheduled every year around the end of January, which tends to be the coldest time of year. Mm-hmm. So it is, um, you know, a number that, you know, we rely on uh, as a state to determine how much money the federal government needs to allocate to every city to address homelessness. So this uh, methodology definitely leads to a severe undercount 
Right. Uh, just to give you an idea, the difference, right? So the uh, HUD count, I think the last HUD count was about 5,200 people were counted, uh, which we have been January 2021. Don't quote me on that. I know it's somewhere in that area. Um, but if you look at other studies and research that's done by like the um, the Chicago Coalition of Homelessness, the number is, is can be as high as 86,000 just for Chicago. And if you look at um, the number of homeless children in the Chicago public school system that have been identified, um, even children living in transitional housing situations, that number is over 16,000. So the number is somewhere in the middle between 5,000, you know, and let's say 86,000 to be on the wow. safe side. But just to kind of give you a disparity, and this, these are pre-pandemic numbers, right? right so to right. kind of give you a, a, an idea of the disparity in the number of beds that the city even had available before the pandemic, we had about 3,300 total beds available in the city of Chicago, right? Uh, during the pandemic, what happened was that CDC required congregate homeless shelters to decompress, to meet the social distancing requirements, to reduce the chances of, you know, uh, dissemination of the pandemic. So what that meant was that the city had to set up emergency shelters like at YMCAs and places like that to decompress the existing uh, homeless shelters to go from having 100 beds, you know, uh, to maybe 40 beds, you know, to comply with that requirement. Uh, and these temporary shelters were set up to take the overflow. However, this, uh, those temporary places have since closed and the number of homeless beds that were reduced have not been completely replaced. So I think the last count that we have right now is there's about 3,000 homeless beds, which is about a 10% reduction. Uh, the number of beds that we had pre-pandemic, which were already you know, very, very low to begin with. So the existing homeless shelters right now are seeing a huge surge in demand for our services, right? So especially at ACP Haven, because we do have a unique model that allows people to come into a transitional housing facility, they get semi-private accommodations. Because of our model, the way we're set up, we were not one of those homeless shelters that was required to decompress just because of the way we are designed where people are actually allowed to have semi-private accommodations. The beds are you know, socially distanced just naturally uh, by design. And then we also, we don't have people living in crowded conditions or in cots, you know, literally sleeping side by side in these open space congregate living spaces that traditionally homeless shelters are typically set up to accommodate. ACK even believes in a transitional housing model or apartment style living where people live, you know, in a condition and environment that's conducive to recovery and healing from any underlying conditions that may have led them to homelessness so that they have the, the dignity, the privacy that they deserve to kind of concentrate on their own well-being. Uh, they pro we provide them three healthy, nutritious meals. We provide them uh, with a multidisciplinary team of professionals, which include behavioral health care professionals, educators, workforce developers, housing uh, specialists, you know, people that are going to literally work with them in every facet of their lives because these are complex issues that cannot be dealt with in a hospital type setting, uh, but more uh, appropriate settings such as uh, what we provide at a safe haven allows them to be in an environment that is 
safe, that is least likely to cause them to contract any communicable diseases because we believe that there's always been communicable diseases, the pandemic being the worst. Um, but, you know, the sanitation and the infection control policies actually prevented ACP from having any Delta Alpha mm -hmm. outbreaks. So we're grateful for that. And we've had no deaths, thankfully, and no widespread outbreaks that led to, you know, uh, widespread sickness. Um, in response to COVID-19, we did know that we were in a unique position to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic because we just so happen to have not just accommodations with the transitional housing that provided them a safe place to be, including our staff, but we also had uh, a wing that became available that we were converting into an outpatient and inpatient behavioral health care space that we uh, presented to Rush and said, you know, on March 11th, we were having a conversation and said, you know, if we are going to have COVID-19 in our country, who is going to take care of the homeless, right? Who is, where are they going to go? And uh, it became a conundrum that, you know, panicked me personally, because I thought, oh my God, if my people get COVID-19, where am I right. going to send them? Especially as we're looking at hospitals across around the world being inundated with really sick patients. So anyway, Thankfully, we were able to invite Rush. They came out. They saw the medical respite space that I was pitching uh, to make available as a partnership space where our team and their teams can work together and create the very first COVID-19 medical respite. Literally within 30 days of that conversation, we were able to partner with CDPH and uh, create one of the most innovative. We actually won an award for the most innovative response to uh, COVID-19 uh, because of the fact that we created this 100-bed space for anyone that was COVID-19 diagnosed that was living in a, uh, uh, unsheltered or uh, crowded conditions, they can come to for free and get the healthcare needs met, get the behavioral healthcare needs met, the healthcare, the, the nutrition needs that they had uh, required, along with you know any other needs that they had for themselves and their family in terms of assessments. So the beauty of that was that we were now uh, had these individuals in a, an appropriate setting where they were getting the right kind of help and assessments. But the great part too is out of the 1,200 people that we had come through the medical respite, we had 100% survival. So it was beyond our wildest expectations knowing that most of the people we served had probably checked off most boxes for uh, underlying conditions that would lead them to sickness and, and death, right? So that really, um, that really speaks to the team effort, you know, where we're able to provide people with all the right services at the right time. But even uh, more impressive too is the fact that we were able to discharge these individuals to an appropriate level of care for aftercare. So instead of discharging people to an unsafe environment, which may have been a, a shelter where they weren't getting their other needs met or uh, sending them back to the streets, you know, uh, they were able to get discharged to an appropriate level of care. So now we even have stories for uh, of people that were homeless for 25 years, addicted to heroin for 25 years, and got COVID, got diagnosed at rush, got treated. Uh, once they were triaged and stabilized, they were sent to the medical respite. Today, these people, many of these people are living the American dream. They're employed, they're permanently housed, and for the first time in their adult lives. So there's a perfect case study right there of how, exactly. we're, how we're able to apply what we just learned during the pandemic 
to other issues that you see as a medical professional uh, deserve much more specialized services in a community setting that's going to teach them, you know, how to maintain their health, but also address and, and maintain their behavioral health care issues and employment and housing issues. I think what, you know, one of the things here for, for the listeners, just hearing about this story that Nellie is talking about, one thing that comes out is um, the scale of the operation that she and her partners have developed with a safe haven. Um, that was one thing I can tell you way back, Nellie, years ago when I first met you, coming into the facility on the west side of the city and not far from Rush where I work, I was just just dumbfounded with how well this facility was laid out, not only in scale and size, but just all the different areas that were, were thought about, about when you bring in people who are homeless what are we going to do? It's not just a shelter in place, but what are we going to do for their wellness? So let's talk a little bit about the a safe haven model, uh, simply because I, I very proudly say it's a social entrepreneurial model. And you use the term innovation, an innovative respite facility was able to be basically built out. I remember being there um, during COVID. It was being built out very, very quickly. Um, and what was needed um, and that is really testament to the, what you've built. You have built a model that is scaled, but you're able to pivot. So let's talk about a safe haven. Can you just give us some basic idea of this? how large is it? How many square feet are we talking about in a freestanding building? Okay, so um, what you, Dr. Agarwal, have come to visit is known as our transitional housing facility. Mm-hmm. So what most of don't know is that a safe haven is much, much more than a transitional housing facility. We actually have about 40 real estate developments throughout the Chicagoland area. So our housing ranges from transitional, supportive, affordable, senior, and military veteran housing throughout the Chicagoland area. Um, We also have, you know, you introduced me, social entrepreneurs, serial social entrepreneurs. So when we started a safe haven with the idea of like, people need more, than healthcare, hospital healthcare for detoxing. And at the time back in 1994, if you recall, there was a big movement towards really looking at the issue of substance abuse as being a criminal justice issue. And there were laws being passed that were incarcerating people. So we were building capacity for prison systems, you know. So with our idea was that we needed to offer an alternative that really addressed the issue of substance abuse, for example, as a uh, as a disease, which being in the medical industry, you know more than most that the World Health Organization, the American Medical Association, has actually defined substance abuse as a disease back in the 50s. But mainstream America did not know that. We knew that because we had personally, you know, gone through it in our own lives and knew that the way the system was set up was really not by design trying to address the disease and help people learn how to recover and manage their lifestyle like you would a diabetic learning how to manage your diet, right? Uh, It's not curable, but it's manageable. So I just wanted to give that backstory as to like why we knew that there needed to be customized types of housing available for people with different levels of needs. And that's why we have this entire phased housing. So you're referring to the transitional housing facility. 
So that building is, uh, I'm super proud. I'm so glad you're, you, you like it, you know, uh, and appreciate, you know, what the people are that are working in that building do every day in and day out. But that building itself is 140,000 square feet. Uh, that building houses uh, 400 people on any given day. Uh, it's, again, set up with semi-private accommodations. So, like, I call them suites, you know, where people actually uh, can reside in their own room. If you kind of think about it as a college dorm, but without the bunk beds and, you know, uh, nice and spacious. So a mother can go into a, uh, one of the suites with her children. And be able, she's able to close the door, right, and go to sleep at night knowing that no one's going to pick back at their purse or, you know, or, or do anything, you know, that would make them feel unsafe, you know. Uh, we, so that we do have a wing that's for women and children, and we have another wing that's for men. Um, and that's the, um, the way that building's laid out in terms of the housing piece. But that building also provides a one-stop shop where within the building, and even during COVID when people were sheltered in place, we have a floor that has classrooms. So we were an Illinois credit college institution. So all of our educational programs and vocational job training programs lead to industry certifications, such as GEDs, such as welding certifications, such as, you know, um, you know, culinary uh, arts, arts, right? culinary arts, such as security guard certifications. So it is, uh, it does offer that on site as well as, you know, clinicians. We have a behavioral health care team that's made up of about 13, you know, cl uh, uh, clinicians that are certified, you know, to work with individuals as well as, again, workforce development, vocational training, and educators. So um, the culinary arts program doubles as a, um, as a dining uh, program. So we provide people three healthy, nutritious meals on a daily basis, their restaurant quality. Uh, and we also run a catering business out of there. So this, um, you know, uh, a building that does do a lot. It's, I like to call it, you know, an oasis in a desert because when people think about North Lawndale, they don't think about the fact that something so beautiful exists, which by the way, the building looks like a beautiful corporate campus, beautifully landscaped. When you walk in, you know, I've had people describe it looking like they're walking into the Museum of Contemporary Art because it's so clean and, you know, <laughs> vibrant and, you know, just a beautiful, happy environment for people to come in and feel that, you know, at peace that, you know, their life is about to change. Uh, so that's the opportunity uh, that we have at that building and the opportunity to build more of these types of facilities in places that need them, not just here in Chicago, but in other cities that may be looking for much more comprehensive and integrated solutions. Right. And I think the thing, you know, Cheyenne, as you're listening to this, you can just imagine this, you know, it's like a corporate park, but it's a park that has everything contained. Mm -hmm. And that was what struck me as a physician, that when you're seeing patients and you know these issues are occurring, and then what we tend to do is we tend to refer out, refer out, and multiple different places are doing different things, and we all know what happens in that. Right. Nothing gets done, yeah. right? We lose people. Right. And here, what Nellie and the team's model has been, there are opportunities here for your development in addition to your healing, in addition to a safe place. And the other thing, Nellie, I remember you told me early on the fact that you had women and children in the same facility as men was unique and, this, and safe. Um, typically, in a lot of homeless facilities, there would be that separation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that also, uh, you know, just shows how it was thought about 
how do we ensure that safetyness? How do we ensure that trust that when they're coming in with their children, um, that uh, you know they're able to heal heal themselves to be better mothers while also not being separated from their kids. Um, that, and that to me was really, um, and from AMWA's perspective with women physicians and with women and children, that's something that's very important to us, that that separation doesn't occur um, because of circumstances. Yeah, you brought up a couple of really good things. I mean, uh, that really people talk about or mention. Uh, one of them is, yes, the importance of, of keeping the family unit together or reuniting them if they were separated. So uh, ACP Haven has been working with the Department of Children and Family Services. So oftentimes, I'm going to give you an example. If a woman is incarcerated, right, uh, and 70% of the women in Illinois have children, those kids are somewhere in the system or they're living with a family member. Once she's released into a safe haven's care, for example, through our Department of Corrections uh, reentry program, we immediately go to work to try to figure out how we could reunite that mother with those children. And once, you know, because we work with both agencies, we're able to really coordinate that family unification. And what most people don't realize, too, is that while that we're waiting for that mother to have that reunification with her children, if they've been separated, then um, we're giving that mother parenting skills, right? Uh, and once that family is united, most people forget about the fact that we also need to treat the child or the children. So the good news is our out-of-behavior healthcare team is that they also provide services for the children, for trauma-informed care services, for example, that they may have had some abuse or may have experienced things that, you know, obviously would be traumatic. So this is a, a wonderful opportunity for the entire family to heal together. And I think that way we're not leaving any stone unturned because I do think that if you leave any loose ends, you know, then things may unravel. And we try to do everything we can to make sure that the entire family unit is going to be sustainably uh, stabilized, you know, short and long term. And also another thing we brought up is the fact that we have a facility that is um, uh, caters to both men, women, children, youth, you know, and uh, I think too often our good intentions in trying to protect populations from other populations, you know, has the opposite effect of, of never helping them learn how to create boundaries, how to communicate you know, and how to, uh, uh, you know, make sure that, you know, they're not endangering themselves or their children. So uh, oftentimes we talked about this when we did our event with the women, you know, veterans that had experienced any kind of trauma is the fact that one of the biggest fears that they have is oftentimes being in a facility with men. Now, if they don't ever achieve that goal of overcoming that fear, Right then, isolating them and put them in a, putting them in a situation doesn't allow them under a supervised environment to confront that fear and give them uh, the skills that they need for communication, conflict resolution, and empowerment. That will never make that'll never happen. And uh, and I think that is one of the beauties of a safe haven is that we're not a homogenous population, but we really do reflect uh, the community uh, in any in every way possible from, you know, a woman, from a man, from a age, from a, 
um, raised from a religion perspective. So for us, this is what the real world looks like. You know, eventually you're going to live with among people that aren't like you and you're going to work for people that aren't like you. Exactly so right. May as exactly well right. help people, you know, learn what that looks like and feels like. And um, and all of the things that we notice at ACT that I'm super proud of is the fact that any preconceived notions that anybody ever had about someone that wasn't like them get diffused when you get them in an environment where they're able to really learn from each other and um, and become, you know, long-lasting uh, friends, you know, and family and support systems, you know, from, you know, the moment they meet to, you know, for decades to come. And, you know, we just wrote this book called Healing. And I've got a gentleman that came through our program in the 90s who's still best friends. Him and his wife are still best friends with their roommates. I love that. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. because they went on that journey together. They have that shared experience and they get strength from each other. Mm-hmm. And saying this is where we we came from, and how we've traveled, and how we've basically now got into a whole new area with our lives from a medical perspective. Cheyenne, you know, as we think about physicians, um, we would love to have this kind of knowledge. That this is a community organization that when you see patients, you, you would be able to say, you know, this is an organization we need to partner with and right. strengthen those ties. Um, Cheyenne, in your experience. How much of the homeless did you see in training um, or was it even discussed at all in training about homelessness um, with the population? Um, It was not discussed um, at all. The only thing I can remember where the homeless was mentioned are in the demographics of certain communicable diseases, you know, like saying that this particular thing is more common among this population. Other than mm-hmm. that, even in, in my clinical experience, I I was not exposed to this type of information. I, I don't know whether or not any of the patients I saw were homeless or not. And, you know, I wasn't able to gauge that. Kelly, I have a question for you. In your experience, have you had referrals come from the emergency department once they would uh, determine someone was homeless that would came in and they had to discharge them out? Have you had any referrals coming from the medical district hospitals here in um, where we are in Chicago? Yeah, if we have, it's been really inconsistent. It's not something that is, uh, you know, established as a, as a protocol. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think throughout the city, and a lot of that has to do with the way funding works. Uh, unfortunately, um, if there is, say, for example, if um, if private health insurance or public health insurance covers the cost of the referral, then it becomes like a natural, you know, referral for the agency, for the hospital, for example. So if there was a physical ailment, such as my mother had surgery years ago and Mm -hmm. she had a gallbladder removed, it turned into a major life-threatening situation that caused her to stay in the hospital for what something was supposed to be a 24-hour turnaround, turned into over a month being hospitalized. And uh, once she was being released, the hospital referred her to a uh, a, a rehab center, right? And I thought that was wonderful that there was this ability to have the consistent insurance funding uh, follow her. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but unfortunately, that does not happen when it comes to stepping down to a community-based setting. Mm-hmm. So, it's important to to note how important that funding stream is to be consistent, where hospitals and healthcare organizations do have 
uh, typically, you know, the coverage, the insurance coverage, whether it's private or public, it does not happen in the um, in the uh, homeless space. Even though one of the things that we learned during the pandemic, for example, and this is a great thing to consider for those that want to really advocate for bridging that gap, is the fact that we learned during the pandemic that while um, federal funding came to every state uh, to address, you know, the, the pandemic through the CARES Act funding, it, the monies went towards what's considered the critical infrastructure. So all of the uh, resources for financial costs, for PPE supplies, or even for the vaccines, uh, prioritized all the healthcare providers, hospitals, clinics, uh, assisted living, nursing homes, because everyone there deals with vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. Guess who was left out? Right. Homeless organizations, homeless, yeah. Or, yeah, behavioral health care and homeless organizations were nowhere on the map, yet we were required to respond to the pandemic with increased financial costs, responsibilities, health care uh, concerns and risks. Uh, so this was a, a huge uh, eye-opener for us to realize that while all these responsibilities and burdens, so think about when they said shelter-in-place and they closed those schools down, all of a sudden, we were responsible for children 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, we had huge surge costs in terms of our financial uh, requirements and uh, obligations that were being imposed on us, for example, to come to work every day, uh, my staff required to work overtime, uh, and we were required to keep the doors open 24 hours a day and take people in the middle of the night, regardless of any backgrounds. <laughs> so it was yeah. really crazy. So anyway, we've actually wrote a bill. Uh, mm -hmm. It's called HB 3949, and it passed uh, a couple of weeks ago, the state uh, house, which was super exciting to see that when we uh, wrote this bill, we said in the future, right, homeless organizations must be considered part of the public health critical infrastructure. Exactly. Very true. And, that, yep. and we got a unanimous vote by the house, and now it's mm -hmm. going to the Senate. So I think that, you know, we don't want to take resources away from important uh, providers, such as healthcare providers, we agree with that and support it wholeheartedly, but we also want to be fair to the people that we have on our front lines and making sure when it came down to, you know, responding to the to this, uh, any type of healthcare uh, situation, whether it's the pandemic or the opiate epidemic, that there should be a mechanism that recognizes the healthcare, behavioral healthcare piece and the importance of housing as healthcare, which is something we trademarked back in 2004, believe it or not, Right. As, did. As, mm -hmm. as a way to respond to any type of, uh, you know, humanitarian crisis. So right. I think the, by doing this, we'll help stabilize the, uh, the what I call the human infrastructure, which takes into account the pillars of health care, behavioral health care, economic and housing. Right. right. Uh, that is every piece is needed to ultimately achieve you know, wellness, and you and I have been talking about the social determinants of health before they became mainstream. Right? Exactly. exactly. Everyone understands them, but we used to talk about them, and it was like our own secret little language. <laughs> but thankfully now, you know, everybody sees it yeah. and understands it. Now the question is, how do we how do we accelerate implementing that, you know, that delivery system and I think that the catalytic moment really is right now with the pandemic and the catalytic moment has the ability to finance this infrastructure because as every state has gotten the kind of money for the very first time in history to reimagine that system, 
that, you know, I think that Illinois uh, can lead in really showcasing, you know, how we can uh, connect the dots with existing infrastructures and uh, allow the data, allow the outcomes to drive our decisions. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, we're saving lives and saving money. And exactly. I think that's the goal. No, I think it's, you know, I think this is such an important discussion now with, you know, the advocacy piece, getting the bill through and making sure that this stays front and center here about where the dollars should be coming. Because um, one of the things that the social determinants are playing out everywhere, they're playing out in the community. The, the disease is the, uh, coming into the homelessness. Um, what is needed has to be in the community where people are if you're going to make an impact. And um, one of our grants that we had in Chicago, a stroke grant, it was a stroke disparities grant um, that was looking at the high disparities that we had in stroke between black and brown populations compared to whites. Uh, when we had the opportunity to partner with different groups in the community to raise awareness about stroke, A Safe Haven was one of the organizations that we partnered with, not by just... Um, engaging the residents to teach them about stroke signs and symptoms, right? Stroke occurs in the homeless population too. Um, it's not like it stops there in some other place. And what we, we were able to do, Nellie, which um, I still remember fondly, is that when we had to do presentations or we had to do focus groups for the grant, we went through Nellie's company or the catering company and they provided the box lunches um, for that um, presentation. And that was to show that you look at community groups, you support community groups, you support community organizations, especially when there are some conditions that are affecting the community. How do you keep supporting that sustainability? And I think that's something for everyone to realize. The community group, especially when it comes to research and trying to do studies, the community groups are very um, present and powerful, but also doing things that make matter to the community group are equally important uh, and respecting that, how can we help you and what you need to do? Um, so one of the things um, I wanted to ask you now, if you had to talk to physicians right now, uh, women physicians, let's say, because this is predominantly our audience, um, what would you like to see more from a physician point of view, whether it be education, whether it be advocacy, um, with regards to homelessness and raising awareness. What is something that women physicians you think could really take the lead and the charge in um, with regards to the work that you do? Oh, my God. Um, the women um, medical professionals are such a powerful force that needs to be unleashed. I think that, you know, many um, women um, in general, you know, are mothers, right? And we understand that, you know, when uh, someone needs help beyond, you know, the physical, that there needs to be, uh, there has to be a delivery system that meets the needs of the mental, you know, behavioral health care issues, the employment issues, the housing issues. I mean, what mother wants to see another human being or especially a child, right, um, uh, at the mercy of a system that, you know, is not being compassionate and understanding the human potential that lies behind that individual, right? That's not being uh, acknowledged and is not being developed. So 
I think that the best thing, you mentioned it already, you know, the advocacy piece, the education piece is huge. I say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear uh, that there was no program, no class, no education to really help uh, the medical professionals understand, you know, the role that they play, uh, that beyond a diagnosis, you know, uh, what needs to happen in terms of a protocol uh, to help refer people to an appropriate level of care as a next step. You know, uh, some of the best patient advocates I've ever met have been uh, women in the medical field, not just medical professionals such as Dr. Agarwal, but also nurses. You know, they see, they get to know their patients. You know, they be, they've been, you know, we've actually had some uh, some cohorts of training with nurses and I was invited to speak at, a, at a, a nursing association event one time. And it was a bunch of women, you know, in the audience that were actually alums of being cohorts of AC Cabin's nursing program. And, um, and I thought that was really awesome that many of them approached me and said that their favorite, their favorite rotation was coming to a safe haven and getting to meet some of the patients and getting to watch them before their eyes, you know, go from being, you know, broken, you know, to being, you know, uh, all they can be as they walk out the door with the job and permanent housing. So that's really rewarding. And I think the kind of thing that doctors want to see and we want to see is that we all play a role and that everybody on the team is doing their part, you know, to rebuild lives in a way that's going to get them to their highest level of health, you know, um, physical and behavioral health and employment and housing. So, you know, one of the things that we focus on from the healthcare perspective is that, you know, uh, beyond, you know, stabilizing them and doing assessments, when we do have the funding for a nurse practitioner, the goal is to do the physical assessments and connect them to a medical home. You know, our goal is not to become their healthcare clinic, but connect them to the local infrastructure in terms of wherever they are within our system, you know, where is there a healthcare system that they can be a part of where they'll build that relationship. We also teach them how to be compliant, medically compliant. We actually monitor their medications and make sure that they are taking them at the right time. Uh, and we also make sure that they understand how to utilize the healthcare system so that if there's a medical appointment, the requirement to actually go to that appointment, not go to the doctor, right? Go to the doctor right. where you're supposed go to, to go. And, you know, and let's get those, those, um, those health, you know, uh, uh, results so that we could see how we're doing, you know, both from a healthcare, you know, perspective and everything else, right? So those are some of the things. And one of the things that we're really proud of is not talked about enough. And I hope that this is going to become more and more of a topic is the fact that, you know, I've instructed uh, our culinary team and our director uh, in the culinary arts and, you know, that serves the food is that, you know, we must incorporate and we are incorporating the fact that food is medicine, right? So understanding that, you know, if you're a diabetic, you know, and many people are in our programs and that everything we're serving, why we're serving it um, is helping address their, you know, cardiovascular issues, you know, their diabetic issues. And we're making it taste good, too. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. But, but you also have diversification of the diets, I've seen. Um, and that's, again, another innovative thing. People coming in to a safe haven, there's a respect for what kind of diet you want and what kind of diet you prefer to eat. And I like that, that at least it's there. You know, the option is there. Mm -hmm. Whether or not people are eating, that's where the nudging comes. You should be eating more of this, you should be eating more of that. But I think that that speaks volumes at times to people that you respect me too, that you're, you're really looking out for my well-being. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's so good to hear. I know about the nursing program. I think um, I brought medical students through there. AMWA medical students have come through. We've done the medical mash for the, um, um, for the uh, homeless vets uh, when there's been community events. And every time the med students have come with me out there have been like, this is great. I need to see this. I said, you need to see this. You need to see what is possible when it comes to extending healthcare outside of the traditional hospital and clinic, but where it can really make a tremendous impact. Mm -hmm. um, I think, Cheyenne, I'm gonna hand it over to you. I mean, obviously there's so many different things we can talk about with um, Nellie with regards to homelessness. Did you have any questions that you wanted to ask Nellie? Well, no, I think you guys have covered so much. I was, I really enjoyed um, listening in to this today because mm -hmm. uh, I didn't, you know, I, I've been on the website and checked out a few things, you know, in preparation, but I would not have understood the scope of this organization until, you know, this conversation. The the multifaceted approach, the, the whole human approach, I think is very impressive because um, we know that people are homeless for multiple different reasons, you know, and the society tends to have, you know, a particular view of the homeless, you know, we d and I'm one of those people who may not understand fully all of the different reasons why people can become homeless and how, you know, their, the trajectory, trajectory of their lives changes, you know, from that one thing. So, I think that what a safe haven is doing, it, it sounds really impressive. I'm, I'm really happy to learn so much about this organization. Yeah. One of the things, Nellie, um, we talked about earlier is that you have a new book out on Amazon. Yeah. And it's entitled Healing. Um, and I think that for everyone on the podcast, I encourage you to read it, Healing Stories, Overcoming Homeless in the epidemics is, is a really book, a good book for you to read because it will show you case studies, if you will, as we talk in the medical world, case studies of people that have really um, gone through the process um, and you know what is continually coming out of a safe haven here in Chicago. Um, I hope, Nellie, we can have you come back because there are you know, two other topics that a safe haven has also um, been instrumental in, and the first one was the homeless veterans. And again, for those of you listening who could think, how can how can this homeless veteran um, epidemic occur? This is the VA. Um, this this shouldn't be happening, especially if you're a non-VA physician. Um, we know very little about um, the vets um, and what they're facing because we really don't see them mm -hmm. as much in the systems. Um, I think that would be a tremendous topic uh, to talk about. And then the other um, issue is uh, the youth. Uh, Nellie has been instrumental in Chicago in opening up the doors at night for the youth of the city uh, to come in and uh, to sleep, to have a place to sleep, to get off the streets. And again, the um, youth, and I think Nellie, uh, it's fair to say the LGBTQ community um, and what they're facing is also an area that we should be touching base on. Uh, so if you're willing, we'd love to have you come back for yeah. part two and part three. Of course. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for having me today. You're right. We can definitely do a whole series. <laughs> yeah, totally. Every different, you know, um, category of 
people that we serve in every different area of business that we do. Uh, but the bottom line is the common thread is, you know, uh, people, you know, uh, of all backgrounds, you know, need pretty much, you know, very similar things. You know, we just need we just need access to good food, safe housing, good services, uh, opportunities. And um, and I think the rest will take care of itself. And that's what we see in this book called Healing. And you mentioned, uh, Shane, how you don't know the root causes of homelessness or why. Most people don't. I didn't, you know, when we first started. But what I loved about this book is all of these individuals that raised their hand to volunteer to tell their story could not be more different from each other if I even tried. (laughs) One of the things that, interestingly enough, you know, I did just put a random post out asking for someone to volunteer so I could sponsor, you know, their uh, ability to tell their story. I had 12 raise your hands at the same time and it turned into an anthology. Uh, But, you know, what they all have in common, which I thought was really interesting, is that they all were suffering uh, for one reason or another, uh, underlying conditions that led them to homelessness for over 10, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And they're all today, you know, uh, will make you cry, you know, in terms of how they're living the American dream and how we were able to show and demonstrate how we can truly, by working together, break the cycle of uh, what's leading them to homelessness and uh, incarceration and uh, ultimately addiction and can put them on the path to becoming the most positive, productive members of society uh, and the best people you'll ever meet that are paying it forward today. So super excited to have been here today. Thanks again. Looking forward to uh, doing this again, hopefully yeah. sometime in the future. Yes, and the All link right. to the book will be in the podcast description for our listeners to check out. So thank you again, right. Nellie, for taking your time to be with us. And thank you, Dr. Agawal, for facilitating this conversation. Oh, great. Diversity Dialogues is a product of the Jedi Council from the American Medical Women's Association. Thank you for listening.